I just want to thank the church. Uh, whenever this opportunity came up at the end of uh, July, I started telling people, and they told me they'd be praying. And I, every single service, someone would come up to me, and they'd be like, have you heard anything? Have you heard anything? And that just, that just showed me how much you guys cared. And uh, it showed me that you guys were praying. And I just want to thank you guys for loving on me and uh, for uh, being with me throughout this journey. And uh, I'm just thankful that the Lord gave me a church that truly cares and loves about me and loves me. You know, a lot of people, you ask them, why don't they go to the church? And they say, I don't, I don't like being with hypocrites. And th there's some of that in church. But I'm telling you right now, with Cornerstone, I can say the testimony of you guys is you guys loved me. So I just thank each and every one of you for that. Tonight, uh, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. I had a slide. I don't know if it... There we go. It's not the most flashy one today. It was, uh, might have been put together a little bit. But uh, talk about powerful prayer. I am a big believer in prayer. I'm telling you right now, you guys have been praying for me. I've been praying. God has delivered. God has delivered countlessly throughout my life. Prayer is something that works. Prayer that is something that's necessary in the life of a believer. Um, when I was in college, I remember thinking that academia, that this was going to be easy in high school, through grade school. You know, tests just came easy to me. Uh, academics, I didn't have to put a lot of effort in it to it. I didn't have to do a lot of work. And then I took a Dr. R class. And the class was on Genesis, and I've read Genesis before. I've read it multiple times. I don't need to study for test one. Test one is about, you know, creation. We've heard that since I was yay high, which was sixth grade. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> I just remember thinking, I don't need to prepare for test one because I know what the material is. I've read it many times. I don't need it. Well, the thing about a Dr. R class is, whatever his notes are, that's the test. And you better remember every word. Because the test is fill in the blank. And you better remember the word that's in that blank. Or you don't get it right. Now, I've studied the Bible, but I've not studied Dr. R. So when I went to go take test one, it was a little bit harder than I expected. I remember sweating a little bit saying, I don't know that one, I don't know that one, I don't know that one. I came in really confident. And after I got done with the test, I said, well, at least that's over. I'll see what my grade is. And when I got my grade back, that next class period, my heart sunk. I got a 40%. I bombed it. Now, the thing about Dr. R classes isn't just that the tests were hard, that they were fill in the blank. There's only five of them, meaning that they weigh a lot more than just a regular test or quiz would. So that meant that my grade at that moment was in the toilet. That moment right there, when I received that 40, it was a wake-up call. It told me that I had to start studying, that I couldn't take college for granted. I couldn't take Dr. R's class for granted. Even though I knew the book of Genesis, I had to study. I want to talk about a different wake-up call tonight, a wake-up call that Nehemiah had. When we think about Nehemiah, I think about a guy who built a wall. That's like my biggest summary of the book of Nehemiah. He was a guy who helped inspire to build a wall. 
And uh, one of the great privileges of hearing uh, Brother Scott, he's actually went through this a couple of times and been able to listen to, to him on the, the transitionary period during this time. We have Darius, he goes and he conquers Babylon. He conquers Babylon. That means that the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians, and there's a new king. And then after Darius, remember Darius was the friend of Daniel, there's King Cyrus. And King Cyrus is a friend to the Jewish people, and he sends out a man named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel's main mission is to go back to Israel and to build the teenagers you know, right? The temple, thank you. Look at that young at heart, I got it. Temple, build the temple. And Zerubbabel goes back and he works on it. And then we have the book of Haggai because they're not getting it done fast enough. Haggai the prophet during that time. They build the temple, but that wasn't good enough for Israel, right? So we have another person sent out about 80 years, 90 years later. I kept trying to track down the time. I couldn't get an exact number. And his name is Ezra. And anyone who knows Ezra, what was his job? He was the scribe. He knew the Torah. He was the teacher. And he's going to go back and he's going to reform the synagogues. He's going to help the scribes out. He's going to make sure that they're following God's commandments. And Ezra goes and he goes to Israel and he does that job, right? So we've had Zerubbabel build the temple. We've had Ezra come back and reform society and point them towards the Lord. That means that Israel is in great shape. They've went through their punishment of being in captivity. They are a-okay. Everything's going good. Just like after I took care of that test, everything was going good. The pressure was off. But then we have the book of Nehemiah. And this is what it says. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Halkiliah, and it came to pass in the month of Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shuzan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, and he certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which left the captivity concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great pleasure. Right? No? They're not in great pleasure? They're in great affliction. Oh, so maybe it's not an 80%, right? It says great affliction and camaraderie. No? It says reproach. The walls of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. I'm going to tell you right now, I bet you Nehemiah, he was hoping for, I don't know, 90%, 100%. He was hoping for a good grade. He gets that report. It's not what he wanted to hear. I don't think that he was clapping and saying, tell me more after that, right? This is what his response was in verse number four. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah had a wake-up call when he heard the words of his brethren when he heard the report of them that were in Jerusalem. They had had, at this point, around 93 years to get it together there. And he hears this report, and things are not A-OK. -okay. Things are not going well. I'm just telling you right now, if you, if you had been waiting that many years, would you not expect things to go better? 
I'm telling you right now, we might be waiting 93 years for them to get 4th Street and 134th Street done. We wouldn't want to wait 93 years and the road to still look like that. We'd be kind of discouraged, right? I already am. I'm looking at the traffic sometimes. But uh, he hears that report after 93 years, and it breaks him. But that his response was the mourn and the pray. And then it says, And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes be open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant. You want to notice something? He doesn't just say, they're bad, they're terrible, they're not doing what's right. Do you not see something? He doesn't just say they. He says we. He says I. He also took personal accountability for the sin. In our nation, I know I like to say they're being bad. They're doing bad. They're not doing what God wants us to do. But we hardly ever point the finger back to ourselves when we take into account the sin of our nation. It says, Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out of the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto a place that I have chosen to set my name there. And now these are thy servants and the people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. I want to pray one more quick time, and then we'll get into the meat of this message. Thank you, Lord, for this day, for allowing us to come out here, Lord, and hear your message. I just pray that you would, uh, you would be with me, Lord. I pray that you give me the words to say, Lord, not my words. I pray that you would just be able to uh, convict us of what you want to convict us of, Lord, and that you would bring us closer to you after this message, Lord. I just pray that uh, you would just be uh, dividing us under, Lord, and uh, making us more like you. In your name, amen. Point number one, Nehemiah hears a dismaying report. He hears a dismaying report. I'm telling you right now, when I hear bad news, it does not make me happy. It actually kind of gives me like the sickness in my stomach. Have you guys ever got that sickness in your stomach after you've got bad news? Uh, you know what? Sometimes I'll look at the Packers score when I can't watch a game, and I'll see they lost. That doesn't make me happy. That's a bad report. You guys were supposed to say amen. You know what? Sometimes I do see good reports like Monday night when I checked on and the Raiders lost. I said, that doesn't make me sad. I just had to get him back for, uh, what was it, Sunday morning, Sunday night? When I hear bad news, it affects me. Let's look at the bad news that Nehemiah faces. 
Nehemiah gets that bad news in verse number three, and they said unto me, the remnant that are left in the captivity there in the province are in great affliction. I want to look at that word affliction real quick. I looked it up. It means evil or distress. These are God's people. They're facing evil and distress. Is God not supposed to protect them? Doesn't God shield us with his divine grace? Doesn't he make sure that our enemies are taken away, are brought low? When you read the Psalms, it doesn't seem that way sometimes. Sometimes I look around and all I see is evil, and sometimes I'm distressed by it. He hears about how the people of Israel have been caught into the sin of the Samaritans around him. They have been in mixed marriages in the book of Ezra. You hear about that? That's preceding this. The people of Israel are in great affliction at this moment. They're afflicted. Let me ask us this question tonight. What about this church? This church and more. Are we in great affliction? Well, the government's not after us. The mayor of Moore, he does not come down here and try to burn the building down every day. I've watched for him. He doesn't come. The, the people of our community aren't actively outraged against us. That's a good thing. We actually won, what, best place of worship 2022? Every time I get up here, I get to say that, right? We don't have enemies coming to hurt us or provide great evil against us. We're not afflicted in that way. But what about the affliction we bring into God's house here? What about the affliction we bring? You know, when we sin, we, uh, we invite affliction. We invite distress. We invite evil. And that causes hurt amongst us, does it not? I praise God that our affliction is not coming from the outside of these walls. Because I don't, I don't want that affliction. But many times today, our affliction in churches doesn't come from outside the walls. It comes from inside the walls. We bring our problems to church, not to Jesus. And we, we hurt people. When we think about this, I think about a lot of churches who they bring their hurt. They hurt other people. Those people get hurt. It's a continuous cycle. Is our church free of affliction? If Jesus was to make a report of our church today, would he say we're afflicted? I don't think we're afflicted from the outside, but would Jesus consider us afflicted from within? Just so you know, I forgot to mention this at the beginning. This is my pre-revival service. So there you go, pre-revival service. Are we afflicted from within? Are we mistreated because we bring evil in here? We bring affliction in here. Do we forfeit God's grace and protection because we step out of his bounds. I hope not. Nehemiah heard the first thing, the first piece of bad news that Nehemiah hears is that the people of Israel that have gone back out of captivity, they are afflicted. But what else does he hear? He hears that not only are they afflicted, but, and reproach. They have great affliction and reproach. They had the Samaritans all around them. I was talking to Blake just this week. He heard his name, so he knows that he's about to, he's about to get it. But he was, uh, we were talking about Nehemiah, actually. 
and we talked about uh, Sam Ballot and whatever happened to him. How did God get him? How did God destroy him? And as far as we could tell, we couldn't find anywhere in the Bible where it specifically says that Sam Ballot found some terrible fate, right? But we know that he was in the Bible. Why? Because he was scorning Nehemiah and the people of Israel. The people of Israel faced reproach when they were doing God's work, when they were building the wall. And as you guys know where I'm going with this, think about the enemies of God today. Think about the enemies of God and more. We can think about the enemies of God in America. That's not hard to do. A lot of them sit on Capitol Hill. A lot of them attend these atheistic conferences, these gender-conforming conferences. Whatever it takes to tear down the name of God, that's where the enemies of God are. But think about it in our town of more, the enemies of God. Do we give them room to give reproach to our Lord's name? Think about it. When we're afflicted, when we're stepping outside of God's, God's protection, and they see that we're, we're in affliction, does that give them a chance to scorn our Lord, to, to be a reproach on His name? The people of Israel were in great reproach because they were not resting in God's divine protection and grace. The walls were broken down. They were in sin. They were not following the Torah. They were not following God's law, and they brought shame to our Lord's name. If anyone's name is, is deserved to be praised all the time, is it not God's? Yet often in our own lives, would we be able to say that we always point glory back to God? Or do we cause it to be shame sometimes? The people of Israel were being reproached, and not just them, but it carries over to the Lord. Nehemiah heard that report. He heard that they were in great affliction and great reproach. As far as I know, Cornerstone Baptist Church is a beacon of light in the community for God. People know that we're a place that worships God, that serves God, that believes in God that we point people to the truth. But always make sure to ask yourself, in my personal life, am I bringing God glory or am I inviting reproach to my Lord? They were being scorned. The third piece of news, the third piece of that bad report was the broken walls. It says, the wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. What is a city without a gate? Right? You are inviting yourself to be conquered, to be destroyed, to be plundered. You think about those coastal cities in England during the uh, early thousands, and the Scandinavians and the Vikings would come in and they would plunder them. That's kind of hard to do against a walled city. Remember, Jericho, impossible to conquer if it wasn't for the Lord's divine power, right? They had a huge wall. Two chariots could go down it. You're not getting in there. You're not going to destroy. Jerusalem right now in this state, in the book of Nehemiah, the walls are gone. They're rubble. They're nothing. They're not serving any purpose. They have no protection. If they're to live for God, if they're to follow the commandments of God, they're going to invite some attack. 
Maybe it's from people, but definitely from Satan. Satan hates it when we follow after God, when we serve God, when we worship God. Actually, I'll tell you this. If you're not, if we're not facing attack from Satan, that probably means we're not being effective. I'm telling you right now, what were the states of their walls? They were broken down. But what's the state of our walls? I'm not talking about that one, even though we want to break it down at some point, right? Or have we thought about it? I'm not talking about these physical walls here, but I'm talking about our spiritual walls. Are our boundaries built up or are they burnt down? Think about it. What about our, our wall of our entertainment standards? I'm telling you right now, you watch any piece of TV nowadays that's new, they're slipping in a new message, a new message, a new message, a new message. They're putting drag queens on TV. They're, they're, they're moving the gay, uh, the gay movement into children's programs. That's their big goal right now, right? They're preaching liberalism. They're preaching that we have to kill off people, right? Or the world or overpopulation will take us down. The environmental goal. I'm telling you right now, they are preaching, preaching, preaching. And if we don't have walls built up, then we're letting that in. That will cause affliction. That will cause approach. How about our music? I, I'm actually not that much of a big fan of music. I bet you guys didn't know that. But music is something that can go right in this ear, and it doesn't just leave this one. It stays. It lingers. You can hear a song 10 years ago, and if that tune comes back, you can almost remember all the words, right? You've got to build up those walls. Or that will get into the city and it will afflict. How about the walls of our time? What do we spend our time? The walls of our treasure. Where are we spending our money? The walls of our speech. What are the state of our walls tonight? Are they built up or are they burnt down? I'm telling you, but we, we'd like to do a building project at some point, right? How about we do a building project tonight? How about we build up the walls? If they're burnt down, they need to be built back up, or you're inviting yourself to be conquered, to be attacked, to suffer affliction and to suffer reproach. What are the state of your walls tonight? Nehemiah hears this report. He hears that the people of Israel are suffering great affliction. They're suffering reproach, and their walls are burnt down. And that leads to a devoted response. Nehemiah didn't get up and say, why is that the case? He doesn't start blaming them for not doing their job. Obviously, if they know what's going on, they probably visited the city, right? Why didn't you guys fix it? Why haven't you done that? He didn't throw, start doing the blame game. He didn't go to King Darius, or the king at the time, I think it was Artaxerxes. He didn't go to them and say, well, you just pour money into this problem and that will solve it. That's what we love to do with missions, right? Or outreach. Well, we'll just pour money into it and that will solve the problem. Instead, Nehemiah is a broken man. And that's going to lead us to our sub-point for this one in his devoted response. He mourned. He was brokenhearted. It crushed him to hear the state of the people of God. You know, I often hear pastor tell statistics. And I said, this is a great time to look up some statistics. And it was not fun. I'm just going to tell you right now. It was not a great time. It made me really sad. 
I looked it up. In America, the statistics, uh, like religiosity, whatever it's called, and it said only 22% of Americans attend church weekly. That's not Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday evening. That's not, you know, Saturday soul winning. That's weekly. That means that the bar is one service, 22% of Americans. I also read that 30% uh, of Americans describe themselves as nuns, not the Catholic women that wear the black dresses, but that they don't believe in any religion at all. They don't believe in God. They're just fine worshiping themselves. I started to dig in a little bit deeper. It says that 34% of Americans consider themselves born-again Christians. And the reason I did air quotes right there is because they're born-again Christians in name only. Only 25% of that 34% believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. That's the state of our country. I did the math. I wanted to figure out what, what was the number of people that claimed that Jesus Christ was the only way to heaven out of 320 Americans, 320 million Americans. And the number was about 27.2 million. That's less than 10%. That's less than 10% of America, the nation that's supposed to be under God, that truly believe in the only way to get to heaven. Nehemiah heard the report of the people, and he mourned. Is that not a number that should make us mourn? That... 90%, over 90% of our country doesn't even know how to make Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior, how to believe on him. I'm telling you right now, Nehemiah wept. Nehemiah fasted. I'm just telling you, I've never, I, you know what? I've only had a few instances where I was so sad I couldn't eat. Only a few instances in my life. Only a few instances where I would consider myself weeping. But we hear numbers like that in church, and then when we get out to the parking lot, we forget all about it. We don't think about it anymore. It's out of our mind, out of sight, out of mind, right? Out of earshot, forget about it. We got more, more pressing things to worry about. You say, Jacob, we can't be sad all the time, and you don't have to be. You don't have to be sad all the time. But what are we doing about it? You know what mourning does? It springs us into action. <clears throat> if we never have any feeling of sadness towards the state of our country, then we're never going to do anything about it. You say, Jacob, what can I do? And thank you for asking that question. That leads me into my second set point. You like that? Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah didn't just mourn. Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah did the only thing that he could do, and it was also the best thing he could do. He knew that the only person that could fix that problem in Jerusalem was not the king. It was not him. It was not the people in Jerusalem. It was God. The only person that's ever going to fix the problems in America is God. The only person that's ever going to fix the, Amer the problems in this church is God. The only person that's going to fix the problem in your family is God. The only person that's going to fix the problems in your life is God. It's not, it's not money. Well, that'd be nice, right? 
It's not extra time. That'd be nice. It's not if this person would stop doing that. It's God. Nehemiah was sad, and that prompted him to turn to the solution. What is our response to a radically shifting society towards satanic impulses? Have you seen their ads of how they celebrate abortion? Have you seen their ads where they're trying to mutilate children? In Canada, they just passed a law which says that they can uh, have youth-assisted euthanasia, child murder. These people are evil. And we can sit around here and complain to, about them, or we can pray. We can sit here and talk about just how messed up they are, or we can pray. We could yell at them, we could be mean to them, or we could do something that will actually make a difference, and we can pray. I'm telling you right now, our state of America right now, I believe way sadder than the state of Jerusalem. They are doing things, they even categorize as satanic themselves. But what are we doing about it? Yeah, we can give money to a political campaign. Yeah, we can watch the news. Being, a, being aware and knowing what's going on is important. Or we can tell the Lord about heaven, how he grieves our hearts, and that we could ask him to give us grace and mercy. Prayers move the hand of God. It shows the Lord that we care and that we need him. How can we say that we love our country? How can we say we love our state? How can we say we love our city? How can we say we love our neighbors if we're not willing to pray? If we're not willing to do something that will ultimately help them towards God. We must confess not only their sins, but we have to make sure that we're clean ourselves. Let me ask you this tonight. If we're not clean, our first prayer should not be that God fixes the sins of our nation. It should be that God fixes our sins and cleanses us. Right. Nehemiah, he didn't start off with, God, please build the wall. He started off with, Lord, he started off with, um, in verse number six, uh, let thine ear now be attentive and thy eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant. We know that God does not hear our prayers if we're in sin. Psalm 66, 18 which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants. Obviously, he loves them. He's praying for them. And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. He took personal responsibility of the state of that nation. He took personal responsibility of the state of God's people. Revival doesn't start in a nation. It starts within oneself. And from that point, God can use us as an instrument to bring upon a larger stroke of change, a larger stroke of facing more towards him and becoming more like him. It will not start with a politician, though I love it when our prices go down. That's pretty much the only thing they're good for. It's not going to start with pastor delivering the best sermon. No, he's pretty good. It's not going to start... 
with whatever you want to insert it with, it's going to start with us getting right with God and asking him to use us. And one way that God can use you to make a radical difference in this world is for you to get on your knees and to talk to him about what you see and what's troubling you and ask him to bring upon us his mercy and his grace. If you want to see Cornerstone become a bright beacon of light, not only in this community, but in the broader community of our state and our country, we have to pray. If our church, if every one of us would just get on our knees and beg God to use us, what could God do with our church? What could God make? What kind of change would we see in our community? How many people would come to Christ? How many people would be saved from the fire? How many people would get out of this broken relationships that they face in this world, the problems they face in this world? What we have is so precious. Why are we keeping that from them? If we get on our knees and ask God to help us share that, what kind of difference would we make? Nehemiah was not only sad, but he did something about that. In his response, he prayed to God. And I want to get into my third point real quickly. A divine remembrance. Nehemiah reminded God of his promises to his people. And I got to move fast. It says, Remember, I beseech thee the word which thou commandest to thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad the nations. But if ye turn unto me, and keep my commandments, and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. First, Nehemiah asked for mercy, for forgiveness, right? God promises to restore his people, to gather them back up. But first, Nehemiah has to ask for forgiveness. He has to ask them, he has to ask God to spare them from that exile, from that destruction, from that affliction that they deserved. What promises of mercy has God given us? Well, I printed them out. Here's... The first reference I'd like to bring up, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise God gave. Like, you can't commit such a great sin that God won't forgive it. That's pretty cool. How about Hebrews 10, 16 through 17? This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart, and their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. How about this one? 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God not only forgives us of our sins, but He gives us hope in this life. That's more than we could have asked for. Are we asking for God's mercy like Nehemiah did? If we're not asking for God's mercy, we're not going to make a difference. We're not going to be powerful in our prayer. And secondly, we need to be asking for God's grace. Nehemiah didn't just ask God to forgive them of their sins and to spare them of that judgment that they so deserved. He asked them, he asked God to restore them. He asked God to restore them. You know what? God doesn't just spare us from what we deserve. He gives us and blesses us with what we don't. God gives out his grace. He gives out his prosperity. What a wonderful God that would be willing to take a punishment and give a blessing. And yet often we go through this life and we just don't think about it. 
We don't think about God. We don't talk to God. We don't think about what he wants, even though he gave his life for us. We think about what we want. We serve our interests. We don't care about his interests. We don't care about his people. We care about our people. And yet God wants to pour out not just his mercy, but his grace on us. Are we allowing him to? Let's look at some promises of grace that God's given us or some grace that he's already bestowed. Ephesians 2, 6, and 9. And hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God's not only spared us, but he has riches to pour on us. 2 Corinthians 9.8 And God is able to make all a grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. God enables us to do good works for His name. He doesn't even expect us to supply that. He does it. This last one, Hebrews 4.16 Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God says that we can come to him in our time of need, and he will pour out his grace. Nehemiah here is asking for grace, something that he didn't deserve, that the people of Israel didn't deserve. He asked for restoration. Have we been begging for God's grace? Have we been begging for God's mercy? If we haven't, we're wasting our time when we complain about our nation, when we complain about the state of our church sometimes. If we're not begging for that, Nehemiah sought it, do we? In conclusion, that's everyone's favorite words, right? In conclusion, Nehemiah lived in a day and age where things were not right in this world. And so do we. The sins and evil of the day broke him and turned his heart towards prayer. He begged God to fulfill his promises of mercy and grace. You know what our monthly memory verse is? It's 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin, mercy, and will heal their land. I did the R thing. Grace. Do we need revival tonight? We're about to have our revival services. How much more better would it be if we came in prepared? We live in a broken day. What's your reaction to that? Are our walls burned with fire, or are they built up with biblical standards to protect against the affliction and reproach of this day? Do we mourn and weep at the state of our nation, our city, at the state of our neighbors, or do we not care? Do we incline our hearts towards prayer? Do we ask for the mercy and grace that we so desperately need and God gives so abundantly free? Will you choose to take part in Nehemiah's powerful prayer? Will you choose to make that your prayer tonight?